Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This episode is called Revenge of the Zombie Rivers. It was written by Stuff National Correspondent Charlie Mitchell, who joins me now. Hi, Charlie. Hello. First returnee to The Long Read. Congratulations, I guess. Thank you. It's, it's quite an honour. The Revenge of the Zombie Rivers. Uh, what is your B-movie about? <laughs> it does sound a bit like that. Um, it was the term zombie rivers that, that sort of got me interested in this. So, so a zombie river is essentially a, a, a river or a, a watercourse that has been developed or, or modified in some way that it doesn't really function like it's supposed to. Um, and the term is used most often in relation to braided rivers and braided rivers are these quite unique very rare internationally style of river where you don't have one single channel filled with water you have these sort of multiple channels that that twist and and braid together um, hence the name and New Zealand is very lucky because we've got quite a few braided rivers Um, most countries don't have any at all and the reason they are sometimes referred to as zombie rivers is because they have been uh, really heavily modified uh, since humans settled, particularly in places like Christchurch. We've built large stop banks, we've built farms along the, the river edges, we've sort of developed our infrastructure all along them, which has sort of really changed how they behave. Reading this as well as the way they behave, modifications, development along these rivers has also changed the way, what we expect of these rivers? Yeah, absolutely. We've sort of structured our our society and our cities under the assumption that these rivers do not move, Um, which for most rivers is the case, that they stay relatively still, but braided rivers do not. It's one of the things that makes them quite special. They tend to move over very long periods of time, but they can do so quite quickly and violently. Um, We saw that fairly recently with this uh, very bad flooding in, in Canterbury, particularly around Ashburton. A lot of that was caused by these smaller braided rivers flooding, and and obviously there's a lot of dairy farms around that area. They bear the brunt of it, but that's how the system works. That's how braided rivers operate. It's it's vital to the way that they function. Thanks, Charlie. Now here is Carol Hirschfeld reading Charlie's story, "The Revenge of the Zombie Rivers." By the time it started raining high in the southern Alps, it was already too late for those downstream. It had been raining for several days in the headwaters of the Rangatata River between Christchurch and Timaru by the evening of December 6, 2019. A sudden downpour overnight brought the highest river levels observed in two decades and made it inevitable the river would burst its seams. The question was where? Like other braided rivers in the region, the Rangatata has been heavily modified. Roads, stop banks and farmland flank its edges. An enormous line of ponds stapled to its side, designed to capture floodwaters for irrigation, resemble an artificial second river. Before human settlement, the river would have simply flooded, forging a new path for itself. But now it was barricaded with stop banks, its floodplain populated by people with lives and property. The river had been narrowed, 
giving the kinetic energy of the floodwaters little opportunity to disperse. It could only build strength as it barreled down the plains. When the floodwaters came, they breached the entrance to what used to be the south branch of the river. Long ago, the Rangatata River split in two. The south branch has since dried up and is now covered in irrigated pasture, which retains the name Rangatata Island. The floods revived the dead south branch, which at its peak had more water flowing down it than the main river. Some of that water itself broke out, flooding State Highway 1 and cutting off the bottom part of the country for several days. At least two more breaches in the main river added to the flooding. From the ground, it would have seemed like chaos. Floods of water rampaging over the plains, damaging anything in their path. But from above, a different picture was emerging. Staff from Environment Canterbury, also known as ECAN, were photographing the floods from the air, later stitching together the images to create a mosaic of the event. It showed the floodwaters were following a predetermined pattern. The flood was itself a river with twists and braids and tributaries, much like the Rangatata itself. A zombie river, long ago buried beneath asphalt and housing and irrigators, had been revived. Over thousands of years, the braided rivers of the Canterbury Plains painstakingly sketch the landscape they now occupy. There are more than 150 braided rivers in Aotearoa, New Zealand, almost all of them in the South Island. Their floodplains alone span around 250,000 hectares, more than double the size of Auckland City. Most notable are the braided rivers that formed the Canterbury Plains, the largest area of flatland in the country. The Rakaia, the Rangatata, the Waimakariri, the Waitaki, the Ashley and the Waiau. It's a privileged responsibility given how few of the world's rivers are braided. Most rivers, globally speaking, are meandering. They have a single channel filled with water that goes from one place to another. Think of the Waikato, the Clutha, the Avon. Braided rivers are complicated, dynamic, destructive. They are three-dimensional in that water also flows beneath the river, popping up as springs and wetlands, which are periodically destroyed and recreated, as if the braided river system is creating its own universe. Some say braided rivers are better seen as four-dimensional. They move across time, existing in different shapes and forms on the scale of millennia. Where a river ends now may be dozens of kilometres from where it ended centuries ago. Several specific factors are required for a river to become braided. One is gradient. They must start at high altitude, tumbling steeply to sea level over a short distance. They also need a constant supply of rock and sediment, which usually comes from young, rapidly eroding mountain ranges like the Southern Alps, which are large enough to create their own weather. Much of this rock settles on the riverbeds, forming shingle islands between small, twisting water channels. When it floods, the streams merge into a single channel, carrying the rock and sediment out to sea in a torrent, 
which is swept back towards the land by the tides to build beaches and protect against coastal flooding. When the floodwaters recede, the river may have redesigned itself, shifted its islands, created new braids, destroyed old ones. Then the process begins anew. Central to this process is flooding. All rivers flood in the right conditions, but for braided rivers, floods are a defining aspect of their physical function. The problem with braided rivers, like any other river, is they periodically break their banks, says Sunny Whitelaw, manager of river conservation group Braided River Aid. The natural reaction is to say we're going to put up these barricades to control the river and prevent them from flooding. And of course, the more you confine it, the more you risk flooding because you're trying to carry the same amount of water in a much narrower channel. We sometimes think of river flooding as abnormal, a departure from regular order, a river's failure to fulfil its implied promise to neatly channel water from one place to another. But flooding is a feature, not a bug. Floods create and destroy new habitat and carry sediment from the mountains to the coasts. The tension comes when people, property and infrastructure are put in the way, justifying further measures to control the river, which can themselves make the problem worse. That was evident during the catastrophic Canterbury floods in June 2021, which caused widespread damage, mostly from braided river flooding. It highlights a fundamental tension. Can humans and braided rivers peacefully coexist, particularly given the expected impacts of the climate crisis, which will, in some ways, make the rivers more powerful than ever? Hi, I'm Michael Wright, host of The Long Read. If you're an advertiser and you like what you're hearing, you could help us keep making podcasts like this one. Thousands of people listen to Stuff Podcasts every day. So if you'd like to be part of one of New Zealand's biggest and best podcast platforms, go to advertise.stuff.co.nz audio and get in touch with us. Back to the show. When the Waimakariri River north of Christchurch spilled its banks in 1868, it caused significant alarm in the city and its surrounds. Water flooded much of Christchurch, including Cathedral Square, but the worst damage was done in Kaiapoi, on the northern bank of the river. The press newspaper at the time reported, Kaiapoi, in spite of all the protective works and cuttings constructed by the inhabitants in the hope of averting the attacks of their dreaded enemy, has, we fear, suffered terribly. The language used by the newspaper was instructive. To some, the Waimakariri is a tūpuna, a taonga, a provider of mahinga kai. To the settlers, it was a dreaded enemy, something to be protected from. The settlers were not living with the river, they were at war with it. In some ways, they still are. Communities have long been built along rivers. Floodplains are fertile, flat and easy to develop. The rivers themselves can be harnessed as machines for economic growth. The first civilizations on our planet emerged in places like Mesopotamia, between the rivers, 
So it's not a new thing, says Professor Gary Briley, a river scientist and chair of physical geography at the University of Auckland. And just like those ancient civilizations fell over because practices were unsustainable, what we're doing is unsustainable. The problems have become more pronounced as society has moved closer and closer to the rivers, emboldened by the idea they can be controlled. We can build stop banks to prevent flooding or capture floodwaters when they get too high. We can funnel rivers down a particular path, take the gravel out of the riverbed, stuff streams and tributaries back into the main channel when they break out. But some of those practices have undoubtedly made the problem worse and the costs have become increasingly harder to justify. In Christchurch, efforts to protect the city from the Waimakariri River are costly. The most recent upgrade of the stop bank system cost around $40 million. In 2020, insurers nationwide paid out nearly $170 million in flooding-related damage, though this figure includes surface flooding from rain. Between 1990 and 2012, Around 12,000 hectares of river margin land in Canterbury was claimed by farmers, an analysis by ECAN found. Some of this development has been in the riverbed itself and has put productive land in the path of river floods and erosion. Braided rivers have been tapped for water to irrigate farmland and dammed to generate electricity. The flatlands cleared by the rivers have made way for quarries, housing, landfills and other infrastructure further justifying engineering solutions to protect against floods. At the same time, wetlands, a crucial buffer against flooding, have been systematically removed. With climate change, heavy rainfall events are expected to become more severe, particularly in the headwaters of the major braided rivers. At the same time, drier conditions on the plains could increase reliance on water particularly for farms, moving us closer to the rivers. We've got all these factors conspiring to make things more difficult for us, Gary Briley says. And where we're at now is only going to be accentuated into the future unless we turn some of these things around. It's prompted a new way of thinking among some river scientists. As the relationship between rivers and humanity becomes more fraught, how do we coexist? Earlier this year, a group of New Zealand academics and scientists co-authored a piece arguing that rivers were being strangled and actions were required to undo the damage. There are many names for this practice. Rewilding, reanimation, redynamization, integrated river management, decolonisation. In the simplest terms, it's letting a river be a river. It's an idea that's gained favour in Aotearoa, New Zealand, over the last five years. It's not limited to water scientists. A cross-disciplinary group, including engineers, ecologists and geomorphologists, have made the argument for letting rivers be rivers. There's often a tension between engineering and science, says Dr Heidi Friedrich, an associate professor of engineering at the University of Auckland. In engineering, we want to put everything in boxes, everything needs to go a certain way. Whereas in science, we understand complexity, holistic assessment, and so on. Engineers have played a significant role in river management. By one estimate, stop banks in Aotearoa, New Zealand, span around 5,000 kilometres, 
more than double the length of the country itself. They protect many billions of dollars of assets, not to mention lives, from floods. But the cost is not only financial. Some of the environmental consequences have not been well understood. After modest rainfall near Franz Joseph in 2016, the Waihor River breached a stop bank and took out a hotel. A few years later, the same river flooded again, destroying a bridge which cost $6 million to replace. It came after a long period of trying to confine the river, but sediment buildup on the riverbed has increased water levels. The solution has been to build the stop banks higher, which is not financially sustainable. One option is to let the river reclaim its floodplain, which has been converted to pasture, or to move Franz Joseph Township entirely. It's the sort of problem engineers need to grapple with, Friedrich says. Conventional systems don't always work. In the past, often engineers did a lot of studies, she says, came up with solutions and implemented them. But especially when it comes to water environments, we see there are a lot of unintended consequences. Just because there could be an engineering solution doesn't mean we should use it. Dr Dan Hikuroa, an earth system scientist and a senior lecturer in Māori studies at the University of Auckland, says recognising this conflict is the first step. A river has been a river mairano since forever, he says. We've created a problem by building on its banks or nearby, restricting it. Hikuroa advocates for a mixture of science and mātauronga. River management in Aotearoa, New Zealand, has been preoccupied with a river's component parts, setting acceptable levels for the likes of nitrogen, phosphorus and E. coli, each of which can be independently measured and controlled. For some river scientists, Matauronga has clarified questions science has been unable to resolve. What if instead of seeing a river as a machine to be controlled, something that can be deconstructed, we recognised its mori and accepted it has a fundamental right to be a river? The two forms of knowledge are not inherently in conflict and can be complementary. It's an idea appropriately informed by the structure of a braided river itself. Heawa feria. Two channels weaving and twisting, creating something stronger. If you can imagine two strands of knowledge, Hikaroa says, when you've woven them, they'll be stronger than those individual strands were on their own. Each maintains its own integrity within the new thing, whatever it is. It's not just understanding the role of nitrogen or phosphorus or E. coli. Those are discrete pieces of information that are valuable and valid on their own, but make most sense when considered as part of that holistic system. It's when we go right down on those small parts, as opposed to looking at the whole system, where things can go awry. It's a view that has already moved beyond academia. Te Awa Tupua, the law granting the Whanganui River legal personhood, recognises such values explicitly. Quote, Te Awa Tupua is an indivisible and living whole, comprising the Whanganui River from the mountains to the sea, 
incorporating all its physical and metaphysical elements. Similar wording is contained in Tamana Otewai, the concept underpinning the government's freshwater reforms in 2020. In its hierarchy of obligations, the health and well-being of the water comes first, ahead of human and economic needs. Introducing Stuff's latest podcast, Once a Panther. We were asked by the community, well, what are you going to do about dawn raids? Why don't we raid the ministers? This is what's going to happen if you continue dawn raiding us in our area. We'll come out to you. We're all decked out in our panther gears. Prepared to get arrested. Prepared to fight. Once a Panther can be found at all the usual places and on stuff.co.nz forward slash once a panther. Made with funding from New Zealand on air. A few years ago, at the Christchurch District Court, a farmer was charged with an unusual offence, building a wall in the Selwyn River. The Selwyn River is braided over some of its length. Much of its observable span is dry, meaning the course of the river channel, particularly where it starts and ends, can be hard to determine. What seemed like a standard prosecution would come to have significant ramifications. The farmer acknowledged building the structure, a bund to protect his land from flooding, without permission, but disputed the claim it was in the riverbed, which would come with a harsher punishment. He argued the wall was in the floodplain, not the riverbed itself. He was found guilty, but appealed. The High Court sided with the farmer, as did the Court of Appeal. It speaks to the confusing way in which rivers are defined. Under the Resource Management Act, or RMA, a riverbed is, quote, the space which the waters of the river cover at its fullest flow without overtopping its banks. Neither fullest flow nor banks are defined. So what does it mean? In bringing the prosecution, ECAN had interpreted it to mean where the river would flow in a 1 in 20 or 1 in 50 year flooding event, an argument it had successfully used before. Under this definition, a river's floodplains would be considered part of the river. The High Court disagreed. It cited a 1905 case regarding the Hutt River near Wellington, which defined a river in relation to normal seasonal flow. Under this definition, a river is a static channel. It doesn't include the floodplain. The court's interpretation stands, radically changing the definition of some riverbed land. The biggest consequences are for braided rivers, which are, technically speaking, mostly floodplain and are clearly not static. The regular flow of water, the channel, is a minor part of a braided river. It's only after heavy rain when the water swells and erodes the river banks, changing its course, that the river operates how it should. As other countries move further towards unstrangling their rivers, legally speaking, New Zealand's are more strangled than ever. The government has announced an overhaul of the RMA, but it's not clear if the definition of a riverbed will change. Sunny Whitelaw of the conservation group Braided River Aid says the current thinking is outdated. Under the RMA, she says, the definition of a braided river isn't a braided river. 
It goes right back to this colonial attitude towards a river being just a channel. It's part of a broader problem. How do you define the position of something that constantly moves? This is a conundrum we've got, Whitelaw says. The damn things don't conveniently stay in one nice-to-find place. They're prone, at a moment's notice, to just sort of pick up and change location. If you've flown into Christchurch, you may have seen how this happens. Land around the braided rivers is covered in stretch marks. They are dead channels and streams left by the Waimakariri River as it shifted north to its current position. Thousands of years earlier, the river likely flowed near Te Waihora, Lake Ellesmere, south of the city. With no intervention, the river would likely shift back over a long enough time period. With the country's second largest city now in the way, protected by 100 kilometres of stopbacks, that is unlikely to happen. It's an issue across the lower stretches of every braided river and the defining challenge for the river reanimation movement. I feel like I struggle with this every day, Whitelaw says. We either choose to take a holistic view and say, OK, we need to withdraw, we need to enable the rivers to act more like living rivers rather than zombie rivers, but we need to know that we're going to sacrifice things to do that, and the question is, who pays for it? Matauranga shows people can learn to live with rivers. When a flood damaged much of Matata Township in the Bay of Plenty in 2005, among the few buildings that weren't damaged were marae. The reason was a purako, a narrative applied to the landscape. The river was said to house a tanifa in the form of a lizard, its tail flicking side to side, a sign that people should be cautious. The story contains a basic geomorphological fact. The lower channel of the river laterally shifts after floods. It's one reason for optimism. This is a problem that predates everyone alive today. Perhaps two forms of knowledge, braided, can help ease tensions in the long-standing war between humans and rivers. Dan Hikoroa says of the move to reanimate rivers, it comes from a way of knowing and being that sees you as part of that system, that sees waterways as ancestors, as tūpuna, that says we would prefer to treat them like taonga, not as toilets. That kind of thinking combined with some cutting-edge technical tools where we can be measuring real-time E. coli, nutrient loads, silt loads, rainfall modelling, I think there's an approach where we can see rivers as more than just a bed, banks and the water in it, and that's definitely the way forward for us. For Gary Briley, the river scientist, answers to some pressing questions have been there all along. It's now time to put the solutions in place. A Mataronga Māori lens is second nature to many groups across the country and it's frankly the direction we need to be going, he says. To me, it's an incredible paradox. We have a good idea from science as to where we want to be and because of the treaty obligations, if there's any part of the world where it should be pretty easy to do this, 
to get on with it, it's here. And yet, we have fallen behind the rest of the world. That was The Revenge of the Zombie Rivers on The Long Read from Stuff. Written by Charlie Mitchell, read by Carol Hirschfeld and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>